out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer Kathy Unsworth, who I spoke to very recently, who's just brought a book out titled Season of the Witch, the Book of Goth. An amazing publication, which has come out on 9-8 books, um, telling the story of goth, the movement, plus a lot of social history from the late 70s and early 80s that we love. So um, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that really was um, the early formative me- uh, years of music. This is Kathy's response. Kathy, it's over to you. Well, I think my equivalent to that David Bowie moment was when Soft Cell were on top of the pops doing Tainted Love. And I do think that it was a, it was the brilliance of how they looked. I mean, I can remember seeing the Sex Pistols as well, and I remember the shock of seeing. And, and the, a similar sort of thing, I'd never seen anything like Johnny Rotten before, and I thought he looked like an alien, and I was sort of mesmerized by him frightened but mesmerized yes um, and uh it because it was all caught up in that time in in the in the late 70s of, of outrage and people on nationwide saying the sex pistol should be killed and you know they were banned from every venue and i do remember that and i do you know i obviously really like the sex pistols but i think soft cell i was more of an age where it struck because i was about 11 or 12 when tainted love was number one and that was like, and he, there was something about him that probably followed on from Johnny Rotten, that there was something a bit dangerous and depraved about Mark Almond, which made me want to follow him. Yes, well, absolutely. Because you grew up in the wilds of East Anglia, didn't you? Um, yeah. On the east side. So was this a bit, were you in a, a village community or a small town community in East Anglia? North? I was very in the middle of a field was where my house was. Um mm. And because my parents, I think because my parents basically both grew up in cities that were being blitzed when they were children and they wanted to get away from that kind of, they wanted us to have what they didn't have. So my dad, you know, found us just most remote place that he could. And, and he was also very good at building houses that were falling down. So he was constantly renovating this old farmhouse in the middle of the field. Right. That's quite um, interesting. Yes, because I, I, I grew up in a village and culturally it was very nothing, really. I mean, it was, you know, status quo, a bit of heavy metal. And and we were very behind the times, you know, and we embrace, you know, you, you don't know any difference. So you kind of embrace it. But there wasn't anything exciting. I didn't live next. You know, some people I've interviewed. go, Oh, yes, we lived opposite Mark, uh, Mark Boland. And, you know, we used to sort of see Mark or we saw this person and we did that. And it's like, no, I just saw, you know, animals and trees. And, you know, we just sort of jumped in puddles, really. That was, you know, that was yeah. kind of it, really. It was a very working class background. So it was kind of interesting that you also had a, a, a rural background, actually. To make our own fun, didn't we? We did. I mean, throwing skimming stones on a pond was kind of, you know, a cheap Christmas present. Really. <laughs> Trying to scare each other with the scariest ghost stories was part of my childhood. Yes, we spent and a lot make, of time in making up lies about scary things that we'd seen in the fields and in certain areas, and trying, yeah, that because there was quite a few. I mean, Norfolk is a haunted county, and there's also the ghost. The demon dog, old Shuck, who you could obviously run into at any moment. And if you do, you're going to die three days later. So when we sat around the bus shelter of an evening, we had plenty of scary stories. Yes. My God, actually, I've just, I'd forgot all about that kind of world of not completely bus shelters, but graveyards, because that was next to the bus shelter. And you'd, we'd have this thing that if you walked around it something like 10 times, something drastic. So we'd walk around eight times and then all get completely freaked out and scream and run off, you know, but it was always those evenings when it was getting darker, it got more and more creepy until you just had to run like hell, didn't you? So there you go. Yeah. And always the older, older boys would tell you, like if you things like if you stare into if draw a triangle on the mirror in lipstick and stare it's a bit like Candyman was the same story but that hadn't come out yet but I just remember this older guy he was he was a rocking mad cat as they called themselves he was a psychobilly but that was his division of psychobilly yes and he my said God. That, that that's what he used to do to be able to see the devil if he yeah 
Yes, and and in that Yarmouth kind of community, <laughs> bikers were quite scary. They they had an authenticity that you know they spent all day probably at the chicken factory and then all night scaring locals. Like yeah, myself. Bernard Matthews, a big employer, obviously. Stories about yeah. what they did with but chickens. But no, actually, oh, no, but they actually, they're, they're outcasts in Great Yarmouth. They um, they took us little goths under their wing. And they it, there was one weirdo's pub, the Oakwood, and it was older punk rockers and bikers, and they somehow didn't mind us little youngsters, and they sort of were happy to teach us more about music that we didn't know about and sort of protect us against the beer boys who were swarmed around the rest of your so. Yes, it was very tribal. So when so you you sort of hit your kind of 16 age, kind of more like the late 80s then. Was that that was that true? You sort yeah, of Yeah, I was born in 68, so when was I 16 um in 80 So god I'm so bad at math 84. So yes. in the year of civil war. 1984 the prophetic year and that was kind of at that time when goth had gone over into the mainstream as well yes absolutely it was it was quite so then yeah just then briefly then so you went to art school in great yarmouth you did your yeah. foundation degree there was that in fashion or was that just a, a straightforward no, it was in fashion because I had this mad idea that I could become a fashion designer, which I was quickly disabused of because I, I had loads of great ideas, but I wasn't very good at sewing. <laughs> yes, and patience, really. And then, yeah, when I did finally get to London College of Fashion, which I I got luckily got on the journalism and PR course rather than because I weren't even good enough to get on one that involved making things, but I I managed to talk my way into to doing the journalism one. Right. Yeah. And then writing, and was kind of then from there, was writing always your thing? Well, I was always better at writing than anything else, really. I mean, my three favourite subjects at school were art, history and and English, and I was better at English than any of them, but they still are my three favourite subjects, and that's kind of what all my books have always been about, a combination of those three things. Um, yes. So, yeah, and and they had uh, as part of it was a H and E course, and part of our course was you had to go into industry, and that's how I did my summer holidays working on with a PR who, who offered summer jobs to students, and she was doing the press for Reading Festival. Excellent. So what company was that? that? She was. Her name was Lynn Parker, and the company was called Parker Lightman. Right. Um, it was before Vince power took over it was when reading was still quite metal it was kind of half punk and half metal yes and it came to an ignominious end when they had starship as the headliners and meatloaf and there was just bikers hurling bottles of piss at the stage that was that was when i was working yes was that bonnie tyler's year as well bonnie tyler yeah it was oh, that yeah i felt sorry for bonnie yeah she, she certainly a... got a raw deal Oh dear, I know Starship. God, we built this city. Classic, yeah. wasn't it? And then after that, did did you um yeah No, so when I was at doing that, um I got talking to a photographer from Sounds and he, and I had a work placement coming up and he said, Oh, Sounds is just run by students. Ring up the editor and you'll get, you know, you could you'll probably get yourself a placement. And I did ring up the editor, Tony Stewart, and he gave me an interview and he quizzed me on my depth of musical knowledge and love. More, actually more of a grilling than I got getting into London College of Fashion. <laughs> it has to be said. Yes. Although I got into London College of Fashion mainly by talking about Oscar Wilde and Jimi Hendrix. So, Yes. God, yeah. I know they were the good old days, weren't they? Where <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the interviews were quite different. So then, yeah, because sounds with the three weekly music papers, there was the enemy, which was hip and groovy, Melody Baker, who was a bit more goth, wasn't it? Beggar's Banquet, and and you know used to have that you know seven inch single that would you know have feature certain bands, and and sounds was definitely the metal one, wasn't it? Out of the three, the heavier one. It was the heavier one, and also it was the first one that got grunge, but then it sadly went. It, just as it was about, because Sounds was the first one that got punk in a big way as well. And the other two were always like, it was that their fear that they would miss the next big thing. Like they, they were, Sounds were ahead of them and ahead in readership at the time of punk, which doesn't often get mentioned because 
because Sands went down first and history is always written by the victors. So it's almost like enemy and Melody Maker did it all. But, and Sounds also got ruined because Gary Bushell got into Oi and that association with with him being and then going on to the sun and him being a dodgy right wing mm-hmm. person to kind of ruined Sounds. But it, it was building its way back up. Tony had sort of revitalised and he had brought in loads of young people and really passionate people and really good writers like Did- Cameron and, and Scanlon and, you know, there were some great people there. Were so. you there at the time that, was it... Um- Chris Roberts, was he there at the time or had he, he been? He had moved on to Melody Maker by then, but then I did get to work with Chris on Melody Maker and he was a good friend there. So, yeah. Yes. What was it like working on, because it was quite competitive, wasn't it, being on a weekly music paper, I would imagine, and a bit blokey, especially the NME and some of the sort of features and stories and that one yeah. hears. It, it, it's quite intimidating. Or were you quite a fierce young person? I, I think I just was ignorance was bliss for me. I when I was at Sounds, but Sounds wasn't bitchy actually. Sounds was a quite a it was a bit combative, but it was more of a family and Adam's family vibe that Tony had got going there. And interestingly, it was half men and half women there. So, which I think gives the place a better ambience. Anyway, if there's too much one way or the other, it starts getting Lord of the Fly. Mm, this so. Is true. Sounds was more, it was a good kindergarten. <laughs> and I mean, I was, I look back on my writing now and go, oh, Christ, no. But I, I was only, I think just left home and I didn't know anything really apart from the field. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then you found freebies and, and free entry to gigs, which must have been kind of life changing. Uh, I mean, it was like, to, yeah, it was very, very bliss. It was very bliss. Yes. So look, my favourite decade, the 80s, you've actually, you, you've captured it in this amazing book, which <laughs> which which is kind of um, boggling, actually, and, and slightly melting my brain, because it's quite, because, you know, as I often do with my interviews, you know, 79, Thatcher gets in, major moment, because the 70s, people were just in and out of number 10, there was, you know, the three-day week, and then there was kind of like plans from the some of the right to sort of form a small army, because they thought the revolution was happening in the early 70s, and then Thatch yeah. gets in, yeah. then we have the Falkland War, which, you know, from being the most unpopular prime minister to being the most powerful prime minister, then there's obviously the miners' strike, Green and Common, we all thought we were going to die, and this kind of amazing amount of unemployment of young people, you yeah. know, so there was Job Seekers Alliance, Enterprise Alliance schemes, I, I can see why there's so many bands, because they all it's just What were... it did create an actual embarrassment of richness for our culture, didn't it? We grow up with all the most amazing music and music was so important and that's part of what I talk about in the book the fact that there was this parallel universe of young people on the dole making their own fun and then of course it came to the attention of Margaret Thatcher and and her attack dog Kelvin McKenzie that this young people were having fun on the dole at the taxpayers allowance no we cannot have this Yes. So she. Yes. So she. And yes. And so. So when you. We need. When did you decide to write the book? You know, on 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 the book of goth because it's kind of a big subject, isn't it? It's. Oh, a, it's, oh, it's been a sort of lifetime in the research, and I had sort of had to be persuaded by a few people to do it, including John Williams, who was my editor on all my crime books, and he kept saying, "Look, Kathy, it's your whole life. You should." You know, and my friend, another friend of mine, Pete Woodhead, was the same, saying, you know all about this, you should do it. But it owned, the ball only really started rolling when uh, another friend of mine called Stephen Coates asked me if I would do a talk. Um, He was doing, he does events at the Great Cemeteries in London. Right. And he had Kensal Green and it. it was going to be supposed to be in the crypt on Falpergisnacht, the 30th of April, when the witches fly. Right. And he wanted me to talk about Gothic music, because he got people talking about Gothic literature and Gothic architecture, and obviously we were in a fantastic Gothic place. So I started looking back through a Roxback pages, through their archives, and trying to find out, you know, interesting and I found my own feature that I'd written at the end of the 80s for sounds about the goth being sort of the biggest one of the biggest youth cultures of the decade and how it had sort of come in with Thatcher and by the time I'd written that it was almost swaggering off out of control but 
grunge had been seeded and a certain amount of other youth cultures have been seeded by goth. But And I started that with Ian Curtis. And so when I was doing this talk, I was thinking, actually, how? And Ian Curtis died at the start of my sounds talk, but that was only a year after Margaret Thatcher got in and he voted for her. He voted for her, yes. You, you, <laughs> and not by mistake. No, and made his wife vote for her as well, which I think was really belligerently northern of him to do that. Who was that? He, he made his wife Deborah vote for Margaret Thatcher as well, so that she wouldn't cancel out his vote. Oh yes, yeah, you, yes, yeah, you, yeah. That's um, that is quite shocking, isn't it? Yes. So yes, so that was it. I mean, when you, yeah. So because what was kind of fascinating with the book was the kind of the social history that you you mentioned so many things that I didn't kind of expect in a goth book because I did think. Oh, it's going to be you know the all the bands that one remembers are going to all yeah. be in there, but they they're not. But then other things are in there instead, which are quite, which I you know because I was a real John Peel fan, and so yeah. I loved that show where he would play a Bulgarian folk record, he'd play Napalm Death, LL Kill J, the Bundu Boys, just chucked it in the mix, and it yeah. was that was the John Peel, and I quite like that. And your book encompasses kind of not just the music but that whole political side as well. So. Yeah, Whoever, I did. Did you sort of uh, not struggle, but did you think, you know, how were you going to do the book? How was that going to run? Did did it have a few sort of false starts, or did it start? Not really. As soon as when I when I wrote my notes for that talk, I I got five thousand words, and I realised that was what it was. It was the reaction to the times. It was Thatcher here. It was Reagan in America, because quite some important bands came from there. And it was the whole way that the world was turned on its head by the shock doctrine of, of of monetarism, basically, by Thatcher and Reagan. And that it was the only time when the forces of darkness that took, that took hold were countered by the forces of darkness on the uh, artistic side. Yes. So that was basically, I wanted the book to be called Goth in the Time of Thatcher, but my publisher didn't want me to call it that because he thought, that her name would put people off from buying it, but that was my whole thesis. That goth was yeah, that, yeah. Because of... you went up to the the grey years of John Major, didn't you? When it all changed in the nineties. Well, I no, I ended with her. Yeah, just I ended with her getting beaten out, and and that was the the surprising thing I thought to look back that we didn't all die in nuclear Armageddon. No, and but that, we... that she did actually help to engineer. The truce, which I suppose we have to even give her credit for, if that was her purpose, then she did do that. And now we're back to square one again with all that. That might as well have. But the fact that it didn't end with a bang but a whimper for Margaret Thatcher was a really surprising thing. I yes, I know. After her early success in the Falklands, so when so when we, when you sort of were doing the book. There was bits in it that, you know, which were fascinating. You, you know, Crass comes into it a lot, which is yeah. quite a surprise because I thought, oh, that's an alcove. Because I, I suppose as a slight confession, I was an indie kid and a bit sort of, you know, you know, vegetarian, you know, PC and all that kind of stuff. So goth music, I had a little bit of a struggle with it because I wasn't very good at dressing up and, and having an outfit and a uniform and sort of being a part of any particular tribe. So so goth all just felt a little bit sort of like another world. And it's only been in the last X amount of years that I've sort of embraced the, the sort of a lot of the music that I thought, oh, God, I was so uptight during that period that I slightly dismissed it, even though the songs from The Cult and The Mission were amazing. There were there was sort of there was a bit of a trouble with that kind of like Lords of the New Church and all about Eve and you know you you know you had this kind of hair and there was a the book came out a few years ago somewhere leather somewhere lace and it was like God I would have never been able to be part of a gang like that so when God when when yeah. Goth was happening I I was I was a little bit on the the Smiths indie front you know listening to like I said the Bundu Boys and you know, public enemy and things like that. But, you know, I, I sort of, it was almost like a guilty pleasure at the time. Well, interesting that most of the bands that you just mentioned, I haven't mentioned in my book. So which shows you it's, you know, everyone's got their own view of what goth is. But for me, it it came from really strong women. It came from Susie Zoo, who basically, you know, Susie, Lydia Lunch, um, Diamanda Glass, um, 
Jules, who used to go, I used to see her supporting Nimal Army, making a whole room full of punk, drunken punk rockers shut up and listen to her telling a story. These were really inspiring women to me. They, you know, and they looked like goddesses to me as well. They all looked in a way that men just wouldn't give them any shit. And because I'd grown up with men giving me shit all the time. Yes. The scene that I more, you know, found a pair of crimpers, spiked my hair up, put the war paint on, it became a suit of armour. Um, and they were my role models, and I couldn't have really had any better role models than those women. Yes. They were so articulate and so beautiful and so fearsome all at the same time. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you had people in L.A., like... Is that Alice Bag as well, who was, you know, in a various punk band. So and, there was a lot of yeah. amazing, yeah. I mean, there's the a lovely Patricia Morrison, yeah, as well, who in the gun club and then in the sisters and yeah. Yes. So how did yeah, so so there's a lot of kind of, I suppose, anarcho punk slipping into this. Oh this yeah, thing. the anarcho punk kind of slipped slipped in why by what we were saying about people making their own fun. It's part of Jim Thurwell said it the best, I think, when I interviewed him. He, he was in London at the time, came over from Australia and was working at the Virgin Megastore and meeting loads of uh, musicians on his day job and making. And he was squatting with Keith Allen from the comic strip. And interestingly, the comic strip began, they had their comedy night in the same place as the Batcave, 69 Dean Street, was where the comedy store and the Batcave were. Yes, and and so, and out here in Lubbock Grove, where I live, though it was Squat Central, and Keith Allen and Jim Furwell Fer were squatting together, and Jim and Keith was going to Jim, stop doing this in your bedroom because he was like a little Jay Meek. He got his bass guitar and two little computers that he'd managed, you know, little sequences or whatever was available in those days. And Keith said, get out and stop being in your bedroom and join a band. And, you know, so that they were all part of this scene. And it was quite a lot of it was based around Labrick Grave. And I'm quite keen on the psychogeography of, of places. And this had been, you know, obviously since the 50s, this had been a place where there was lots of underground music. IT magazine had come out of here and that whole sort of hippie underground. Yes. Which, crass were a part of it carried on over they were that generation and even though the punks always say never trust a hippie half of them were hippies and half of them came with the ideas from the 60s and the situationist international began in the 60s that Malcolm McLaren was so fond of so crass were part of that tradition and as Jim said when punk was the big bang and then it was the expansion of the universe and all these little record labels started up and all these little fanzines and they were all helping each other distributing around the land with these networks set up by, you know, the cartel by people like um, Mute and Rough Trade and 4AD and Red Rhino up in Yorkshire. And, and Crest had their own studios, they had their own house, dial house, where loads of people came through there and loads of goth bands were very influenced by Crass and Crass were pranking Margaret Thatcher. You remember the How yes. Does It Feel to Be Mother of a Thousand Dead single and getting questions asked in Parliament. So I think they're really a really important force that you have to understand to make sense of the whole of this time in the 80s. And, you know, I think New Model Army were the sort of biggest band that were the most like anarcho-punks and and still exist to this day, but the ideas sort of came from Crass. Yes. And in, you know, from a mixture of punk and the counterculture before it. Yes. Um, which, which made England, which made Britain such a, fer and London such a fertile place, but also it spread around. Once the punk virus was out, it spread around the rest of, of the whole of the British Isles. And yeah. So. This is interesting you mentioned the psycho geography of it mm. because because obviously they not obviously but there's obviously the the london and uh, not london leeds leeds is mm. another place that it really that that seed hits doesn't it 
And yeah. and I think there was a sort of a, an art school scene in the sort of mid seventies that starts producing a lot of interest in bands like the Gang of Four and obviously John Langford from the Mekons and um, the Three Johns. And then you suddenly was it the warehouse they had in Leeds that suddenly had all these the bands like the Dance Society and the, the, you know the Sisters and, and then obviously they, the the anarcho punk world that was Jumblewomba and people like that. So so why so Leeds was another sort of Place, yeah, there it? was a, a club called the F Club that I think was a really important one as well, which was where Claire Shearsby was the DJ. And I I spoke to her and, you know, she, Andrew Eldridge came to Leeds as a student to learn Chinese, because which he wanted to do at Cambridge, but for some reason they wouldn't let him. And instead got sucked into this world of the F Club where all, all the most amazing bands were playing. And I think when he first got to Leeds, he got to see Pear Ubi and the cramps and just uh, amazing and this is where that all the art students went there and they went to a pub called the Favisham as well where there was an, an amazing dancing barman who was very entertaining and and that soft cell was part of all that as well and they at least Polly as it was called then um, and yeah so Leeds was a big massive centre of it and then say was Bradford, which New Model Army had their version of Dial House there. A small, yes. You know, they had their small studio in the basement. And that's where Ian Asprey met the rest of what would become Southern Death Cult. And he started after going to a Poison Girls gig there. Yes. Yeah. What I found really interesting about all of that was the psychogeography of um, of Yorkshire was that Leeds and Bradford had always been against each other since... William the Conqueror came and, you know, harried the north where Leeds was safe and Bradford was harried and and the Wars of the Roses and, and the English Civil War, they'd been against each other. But the one thing that finally united them was the miners' strike. Yes. And and the was had the one in was it one in twelve club in Bradford started by then? Or was yeah. that Right. So that was it. So, the, yeah, so so that, that was the other thing, because apart from there was the minor strike, which was obviously on the news every night for years and Scargill's kind of big decision of not having the ballot and, you know, the whole country sort of groaning with kind of, I don't know, anxiety and, and sort of apprehension, really. So how did you feel that that sort of political world? Because we had Red Wedge, didn't we? That that was always my kind of, oh, yes, minor strike, yeah. Red Wedge, Billy Bragg, the Redskins that you mentioned, Christine. Where yeah. is Christine? Um, no, in, but, interesting you should say that because uh, no one, I tried to find his whereabouts and no one did seem to know. But then a few weeks ago I was reading some article in, the, in one of the Saturday supplements about how they were trying to restore the Peak District the bogs on the top of the Peak District to how they would have been pre-industrial revolution time. One of the people leading this was called Christine, and I actually thought, I wonder if it is the same one, because I can kind of imagine him rewilding the Peak District. Yes. In it's secret. A, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it would be a lovely thought, wouldn't it? It'd be yeah. like, you know. He's the yeah. most mysterious man from the 80s, really. I think he's... he's the, like, I like the fact he's like a fake hero. Yes, one yeah. classic album. Yeah, so so the minor strike. How did how did you how does this play a part in in the goth kind of narrative? Well, I think well, loads of all those bands were doing benefits for the miners the whole time, and New Model Army still are. They're still doing benefits for the All Grief Truth and Justice campaign because there's never really been there's uh, you know as you saw how long it took for Hillsborough. There's been no inquiry into what happened on the day of, of Orgreave um, when all these miners got charged with offences that could have seen them in prison but then yes. they all let go and yeah no it's it's kind of a part of that 80s narrative I love and I was just kind of interested and, and excited because I love reading about these sort of stories and because you also bring in the Battle of the Beanfield as well yeah. which is a, a, another one about the travellers because during the it was kind of interesting I don't know if your parents were like this but I know that in the early 70s a lot of people moved out of London youngish people to start families in East Anglia and they used to go to the Barsham fairs and the Albion fairs which are these very folky things with a medieval theme and all want to become potters and sort of you know live off the land in that self-sufficiency the good life sort of way and yeah. um and and that kind of 
then created the convoy or the peace convoy that that became yeah. known going to all these fairs and festivals yeah i know and then that it's terrible i don't even think it should be called the battle of the bean because it was not a battle was it there was more police than there were people and they were dragging them no it's those kind of, you know we saw it happen at Wargrave where they politely ushered them all into this field that they couldn't get out of and then rammed them, p- police in full riot gear, using the sort of equipment they'd been using in Northern Ireland. And then they did the same thing to the peace convoy and it, it was a terrible. It was the end of that that kind of... And that was the end of that whole way of life and that's where Crest stopped doing for a long time and they... What was their uh, the classic album called Best Before Nineteen Eighty Four? Because SPG were following them around the whole time. Yes, um, it was. It was a scary time. And then also in the book, which was kind of fascinating, you put these chapters in of people that you you sort of put as sort of good influences. One being Karen Dalton as well, the, oh, this yeah. kind of mysterious folk singer. How did what when when did you start having that? Was that an idea that you always had for the book to put yeah. these extra chapters in for people to yes, educate, be educated or at least kind of have a bit more knowledge on on sort of the 80s. Well, yeah, I guess because I came from magazine journalism and I was from Bizarre Magazine, where I worked for a number of years, and also then I'd been doing a lot of subbing on Mojo Special Features, um, where they have sort of really good in-depth looks at, say, David Bowie or the Beatles or the Stones, and they'll take loads of articles throughout their career, and but they'll go into real depth. And So when you write a book like this, you have to set out a proposal for it to show publishers before you get to write it. And this took me a year to do mine. And that's why I, I had mapped out what would be in every chapter and how I would go through the history of the 80s sort of in concentric circles so I could bring in all the bands that I thought went together. And part of that was I was imagining it as if it was in a magazine and it would have a box out on goth mother, box out goth father, so you could show either influences were on those on those bands you know how say joy division were influenced by jim morrison he would then he would also influence echo and the bunnymen he would also influence the cult so you have the three ians of goth yes summons him ian mcculloch does an album as good as a doors album when they when the bunnymen do ocean rain that's their peak and then ian asprey becomes him (laughs) <laughs> keeping well fronts the doors <laughs> yes this is this is quite sweet isn't it yes because there's so I, yeah so i wanted to sort of say to understand more about the goths in the 80s here are the people they were influenced by and and going right back to the industrial revolution as well you know the name the doors name comes from william blake the doors yeah. of perception and say so william blake wrote about dark satanic mills and our goths in the 80s saw the end saw the destruction of the end of that the industrialized industries so it they harp back to each other i think in i think it all goes in circles yeah it was just it was you know i love those kind of stories all those kind of artists who make or do a couple of amazing albums and then just disappear and and obviously the redskins are a bit more well known but people like karen is somebody I know there was a film about her a few years ago, but again, she was yeah. so obscure and yet such an incredible story. And there's these little snippets, and so it was great that it's kind of in a book because obviously more people are going to suddenly, you yeah. know, want to go and discover a bit more about her. And yeah, and like the great and mysterious Bobby Gentry, who's all her songs are so mysterious, and she was in total control of everything. You know, she wrote it, she played it, she engineered it, she produced it. She'd made her own clothes. She had her own TV series on on the BBC. She was an amazing package of talent and beauty. And then at the top of her career, she just disappears. And that's the end. And yes. I, I think she's the smart, even smartest. Do you think Dolly Parton's the smartest woman in, in music? But no, I think Bobby's even smarter because she doesn't have to hobble. Well, Dolly doesn't hobble, but she doesn't have to keep trying to look like she's 20. She just <laughs> looks at her height of beauty and then she disappears and you never see her again. So and cool. She, 
she got all the money she needed to not have to do any of that ever again. And yeah, but yes, left, left this fantastic, mysterious legacy to for us to go on experiencing and finding. Yes, because having done you know this a show this show for such a long time, I noticed that most bands have a five year narrative. You know, they have that twelve month honeymoon period. They sort of get together, they rehearse. You know, mostly on on in, unemployed and on the dole job seekers allowance if you had your thousand pound in the bank account and then you know that single gets played by john peel the john peel session that first album tour in the little you know the uk which is a tiny little place with their little transit van things are going well the second album bit tricky then the third it's kind of all over did you sort of find research in this book that 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 kind of was a, a pattern with a lot of these bands that their best work was done in those kind of early years and then the difficulty of just keeping that relationship with the band and the management and the record label together just beyond anyone's kind of um, ability. Yeah, I think it's true. I think there was the, although, you know, there are a few people who have stuck it out, like The Cure probably being the most successful example of that. Um, but the personal does obviously have to change because when you consider that the original Cure met at, junior school I mean how can you sustain that into your 60s without wanting to murder somebody I think probably the most successful people are the people who don't actually stick to a formula and keep reinventing themselves like Lydia Lunch would be my prime example she's done you know so many different things with music with film with spoken word and she's kept different genres of music kept experimenting and kept collaborating with new people all the time and just you know, that's a true artist to me. It's not finding a formula and sticking to it. It's just keeping on yes. pushing yourself. You know? Did you did you have with, with the book, did, was there sometimes a bit of a struggle not to let it expand too much? Because you sort of touch on quite a lot of the Australian artists yeah. as well, don't you? And then, you know, do you think, oh, actually, there's this other band, but if I go there, that's going to just lead to more another yeah. another year yeah. of writing. Did you, did was that a difficulty for you? Not really. I put all the people I thought were really important. I thought the people who really originated stuff rather than the people who then copied them, the people who pioneered it and the people who, to me, had the most um, impressive things to say and the most lasting. I mean, I played all of that music again and it still sounded absolutely brilliant to me. There was, you know, some of it did does suffer from the dodgy production of the 80s but to be honest not a lot of it um, yes so I just did the people that I truly thought were amazing and you know it could have been a lot bigger I guess but it was quite carefully planned out to be the way that it is yes I mean and and even Joseph Porter from Blythe Power gets a mention which I was very excited by and, yeah. and the mob you know it's like so that's why I was always, you know, I love these sort of books that have so many little extra things that come in, which you think, oh, God, you know, because because you also may mention Alice in Wonderland, which I remember doing an interview with both the doctor, who's not really a doctor, and Christian. Um, Is he not? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I always thought it was more of a Paisley club than a, a than a goth club. But when you realise that Ian Asprey and Billy Duffy were going down there, and how they suddenly became all psychedelic. They got medicined by the doctor. So he was a doctor in that sense. And they had the, the Anadin Brothers on the Rain video doing the dancing for them. And then Zodiac Mindwalk comes into this milieu and his biker get up and it's just like ultimate all over again. The hippies get coshed by the bikers and suddenly Ian and Billy get their letters on. And I thought there was this really amusing bit where they're like ringing up Rick Rubin and going, no, we don't want our record to be called Peace anymore. We want it to all electric. And we want you to give us a full metal jacket. And at the same time, Andrew Elvish says, Was that Jim Steinman there? Can you can you give me a 40-piece orchestra and the full works? And it's yeah, it's that's what I mean by it sort of swaggers to its own in the 80s in a in a very decadent manner. Yes, I know. And I think one of them mentioned that Lemmy used to go there quite a lot as well. So Lemmy was always playing the one arm bandit in the San Maritz Club, whatever was going on in there. And and, yeah. and they even went to, they even had a boat, uh, a coach tour, didn't they, to Great Yarmouth once? That was hilarious because I still lived in Yarmouth when that happened. And I 
didn't go on that, but loads of my friends showed off about how they had tickets. And it, they got, went all the way to London and got on the coach. And the coach, some, something happened as well, I think. It broke down or it took ages to get there. And they realised they were coming all the way back. And it wasn't Yarmouth, it was Lowestoft, but, which was like three miles down the coast. So, oh, how we laughed at their expense. Oh, that's oh. And do you, and sort of the other thing that, that's been really interesting timing, and it's the kind of the passing of time, is, is that, you know, when something happens, it's like just a bit disposed, isn't it? We think, yeah, whatever, that's fine. And then, you know, we all move on. And then, you know, a few, three decades, four decades go, and then suddenly there's this kind of amazing interest in it, isn't Because there was a few, in the last few years, I've just noticed so many books coming out, you know, academic books, kind of people writing their memoirs, photographic books from people like, is it Kevin Cummings who just yeah. did these Sex Pistols one from 1976 and that only came out and it was like, well, no one was that interested before. And it's like, blimey. And, you know, yeah. the same with, you know, there was the one on Texas and one on the Boston scene and there's, you know, the Mud Club in New York and CBGBs, you know. So do you do you sort of did you sort of feel that this this was the time for writing a book on the, the kind of the kind of 80s goth yeah. scene? I did actually because I think the 70s and punk has been done quite a lot now. And I did do, I made my contribution to that was doing Jordan's book with her, which was obviously, which was really interesting to do because she was talking, you know, finding out the antecedents of punk from her and the secret world of gay clubs that she went to that then begat punk. And then very much that came, the next thing from that was goth because it came out of the same scene. Susie and the Banshees were following the pistols around and, Joy Division and, and Magazine came out of Howard DeVoto bringing the pistols up to the lesser free trade hall. So then I, you know, I thought it follows on. And, you know, the 80s, we're paying the price for the 80s, paying the bill now for everything Margaret Thatcher did. Yes. You know, we're, back, we're almost back at this, the, the situation that, that James Callaghan was struggling with in 1979 that he couldn't contain because the prices of and the prices of denationalizing all the industries mean that our our fuel prices are going through the roof and our, the prices of food is going through the roof. And we now more or less live in the late 70s again. And, you know, the Cold War is back on. Russia is as scary as it was then. And, we've, you know, we've come back to the beginning with, and what have we got to show for it? And I think that's that's kind of what I'm sort of looking at in my book as well. Yes. Did you, because... Um... I, I I have read my. Did you mention Chernobyl in the book as well? Did that sort of come into your narrative with this this particular publication? No, I didn't mention Chernobyl. Actually, I don't think that had happened by the time my book finished. Or maybe it must have done. Yeah, it must. Eighty six. No, which is because because I do love the eighties. I love that cultural reference. I do love that kind of whole kind of. I suppose that also on a personal level, processing what happened during that period for myself and sort of yeah kind of taking it in and and I suppose it was quite interesting you know all those little extra things that you you gave us within the book as well as those historic characters and films films to go and watch as well because you know let's face it you know David Lynch films on a sort of late night Friday night was sort of essential with Betty Blue and Diva and all those kind of movies which you know the 80s had a very rich time for us really so um uh, yeah very rich culturally all around and as as we said quite a lot of that came out of People not being pressurised into doing rubbish jobs for no money. Like, yes, and, and, and did you and did you sort of almost think, well, blow me down with a feather when you thought, my God, Susie, Susie's back. She's doing some. Yeah, I, it was amazing that we thought we'd have that on the front cover before she came back. But it's an um, it's a nice coincidence, that, isn't it? It's like a like a magic thing that. You know, I, I put a lot of it down to magical thinking anyway, so it's a magic thing. Yes, and and I know, I think there was, was it a guy called Hugo, is it Hugo Race, who was in one of Nick Cave's early bands? Yeah, he was in the Bad Seeds, yeah. And I know that he's recently sort of reforming one of his early bands, because I did an interview with him, and he said, oh, we're going to get back together. So there was a lot of kind of um, people making these connections yeah, again. And, yeah, Crime and the Solution are back, and... Yeah, Mark Almond recently played a gig with with Feet Jim Thurwell in New York, where they reprised their fantastic rendition of Ghost Rider by Suicide. 
The kids are getting medicined again by this stuff. It's well, they are. My fourteen-year-old niece, her favourite song is "Release the Bats" by the birthday party, and of course Tim Burton putting the cramps into. Yes. Even and though the... he he's kind of cleaned that track up a bit too much. Yes, but the yeah. interesting thing during during not the only interesting thing, but one of them was. On a Friday night, the tube used to be on, and they had all these yeah. amazing bands, and all the crowd used to look absolutely bored, bored to tears, apart from once. It was the Smiths, but it was also the Mission, where you went, oh, look, the crowd looked like they're really excited. But mostly they probably thought, oh, another Friday night, we've got uh, lots of bands, we don't care. But I do I remember... Would the- have a look at the new Mortal Army footage of them. That's the best mosh pit ever on the tube, of them doing Christian Militia and Small Town England. That right. Magic moment. And the Three Johns. Doing teenage nightingales to wax an English white boy engineer. Those are my two Yorkshire top tips for the tube. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll definitely play them because I my memory is that the crowd just looked a bit like, oh, the camera wants to come bars, and they just looked like, oh, who's what who are we watching tonight? kind of thing. But I do remember the mission and wasteland and thinking, mm, I quite like that song. All mm. over the, the the light bulb changing, dancing, and people sitting on each other's shoulders doing it, and sometimes pyramids three people high. Yeah. It was, it was. And, you know, we it's love amazing. Wayne. So have you read Wayne's latest book as well? I haven't read Wayne's latest book, I'm afraid to say. No, yes. I've been, he's not, doesn't play a massive part in my book because I'm a bit eldritch partisan about all that, you see. <laughs> you have loyalty. I have loyalty to the Dark Lord. Yes, well... I, you know, and and I have to say, Jules, I did an interview with her and she told me her Hell's Angel stories. And I thought, God, that's one tough childhood you had. Did she tell you how Ian Asprey came to her house via Stephen Wells? Did she tell you that story? I can't remember. Um, I was a bit traumatised with, with this kind of Hell's Angel that had her as a, you know, uh, on the with his bride. I mean, it was like, oh, this is interesting. But that was preferable to her own mother. So that goes to show, doesn't that? Yes, she was up against. (laughs) Yeah, I know. She's. I mean, yeah, it's great. I mean, in a way, it's just brilliant that so many people are writing books. That the there was one, you know, Factory Records has just had a book written about the women, and I know there's another person who's done a book on American punk women in punk from 1975 to sort of 83, which is just you know talks about all the women in bands. So it's really amazing that you know and good that it's kind of the narrative has been sort of retold because frankly it was getting a bit tedious just listening to the usual old boys that's my theory yeah well I tried to put as much importance on the women in this whole scene as I possibly could and you know because there is between every Nick Cave there is Melanie Elaine and she was very important and she sadly is no longer here and she hardly spoke very much when she was here but I wanted her to be in there and Annie Hogan wrote so much of brilliant music with Mark Almond yes it still saddens me that they they are not together as a creative partnership anymore because as much as I love what they both did apart from each other I still think the stuff they did together is the best yeah I kind of feel like a child of divorce with those two but you know and yeah Jules Lydia Dear Amanda, I wanted them all to, you know, get their flipping say because they said it so well and they were so important. Didn't yes. anyone ranted as much about AIDS as Dear Amanda or did it in such a dramatic fashion as she did? And it's shocking to look back and find out it took our government so bloody long to do anything about AIDS as well. Another. Yes. But that, yeah. yeah, but and yeah, at the time, the Sun and various other papers were just so horrendous uh, about the the whole stuff. And I remember doing an um, interview with James Brown, the writer, and he was just saying that he was he used to be traumatized when he was young because he just thought we were all going to catch age, which was the way that they um, yeah portrayed it was you know horrendous. How Calvin McKenzie wanted everyone to feel, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. This is true. And so with, with I mean, this is probably, you're still digesting this process, but have you got any plans for your next book? No, not at the moment, no. This has been like a massive, yeah, a massive labour of love and just taken all my brain fuel that I ever had to get this one out. So I might need a bit of time to recoup from this. 
you know. Yes. Well, I have to say, Kathy, this is amazing. So thank you ever so much. And yes, you've touched on all those. Oh, just one little thing, because you yeah. mentioned Daniela Dax, which is... Oh, Daniela Dax. Yes, God, I should have said her in my list of goddesses. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, she was completely, and she, she even has she a little bit, bit. But there was also that moment, and I know um, Cole, Cole Blake was in the um, Lemon Kittens and worked with her. But then he, there was also that kind of weird kind of acoustic goth scene that had lent towards the right in a rather dodgy way um did you did did that I mean I don't think that's in the book did did you ever sort of see any of that you you know yourself on a personal level that the way because I know that the the Nazis got into sort of these kind of weird kind of green youth groups who you know veered into the far right and stuff like that I just wondered if um yeah, if you ever had any sort of thoughts or opinions about that. Well, no, I didn't. I weren't really interested in it. Um, I, I know what they did the same in, in black metal as well. They, they come through saying it's, it's well, either they say it's Satanism or it's folklore, but what they really mean is it's not. It's no, no, that's got no place in my world. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, it's just kind of, you know, these these sometimes sort of folky things, movements, get slightly sort of corrupted and then they become dark. Well, and... they are, yeah, there was good evil and bad evil, I suppose. <laughs> 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 it's, it's just like there's Charles Gray being Macarter and the devil rides out and then there's real evil. <laughs> yes. And Alistair Crowley, where does he fit? Because he he appears for a, for a yeah, chapter. Yeah, I did think that it was quite important to get to grips with Crowley and his philosophy and just to understand more about more of that that side of the, you know, Jazz Coleman was really into it and say with Jimmy Page and, you know, that's that he was supposed to, but he wasn't a devil worshipper, that's the thing. He wasn't worshipping the devil. He had his own take on on religion but yeah he he's just such a fascinating character Crowley and how he wound people and it's also it's part of this cycle that he he was totally in the wilderness for what he did during World War II when he was well he says he was a secret agent for the British government but you know he was a was a abetting doing propaganda to help the Nazis but he says in an undercover role but you know but then he has this renaissance at the end of the 60s when he's suddenly on the cover of Sergeant Pepper as one of their heroes and I think that at that time at the end of the 60s Kenneth Anger was, was in London and mingling with he was a Crowleyite he was mingling with the Beatles and the Stones and those ideas were coming back into fashion and so yes. you know they here's like, and then that People got interested in the decadence and Oscar Wilde and Aubrey Beardsley. It was a massive Beardsley exhibition in 1968. So they, that imagery um, from that time with Crowley and Wilde and Beardsley, that it, it got back into the mainstream again. And, and people in goth times came back to that imagery. And it was, I don't know, the genie was back out of the bottle. Yes. Well, I like those kind of cultural mashups, even though they can sometimes be referred to as cultural appropriation but there's those sort of the Weimar Republic period which also yeah, gets you know that really quite a strong kind of pull towards the world of 80s goth as well oh uh, yeah and when you think about that George Grayson or Odix had seen the trenches and they'd seen what Jack Brown wrote about in Next they'd seen that for real with their own eyes and that their response to that is really interesting I think it's so surreal and so satirical their art and so mocking of authority so of course, when people rediscover that and how patent that is, they're gonna think, God Almighty, you know, how brave these people were. We can yes. take something from that. Yes, absolutely. We thought just going to Glastonbury Festival in a in a wet year was hard going, but it's nothing compared to the trenches. No, exactly. Unless it was in nineteen eighty five when it suddenly there was a bit of a resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it's it's yes, our Glastonbury experience. Yeah, no, it's kind. Of, I think what's kind of interesting is when you get those kind of cultural moments that get all pulled together with a bit of the you know tarot, with the sort of the the Ouija board, with you know Weimar Republic, and you know those dark, dark, not dark, but you know slightly sort of interesting shades. Shadowy yeah, and moments. there's also the fact, yeah, young people like to shock, don't they? Using shocking imagery to shock your parents. Punks did that more than goths, I think, but that is part of that's part and parcel of what it is without being meaningfully wanting to, you know, hurt people. Yes. But the interesting, just lastly, then, because what was quite interesting in because you mentioned in eighty nine around then, you know, the anti poll tax, um, you know, appears or the poll tax and then the anti poll tax. And I moved into the anti poll tax house in Norwich, and I remember one of the people was called P, and he was really against goth. He hated. He said one of his things. He used to say, "I'm not going to get buried because I don't want goths shagging on my grave." And I always remember. <laughs> I always remember thinking that was a really, that was my one of my memories of Pete in the anti poll tax house and this thing. So that was when I was thinking, yeah, funny goths still during that age. Some of the you know the old punks, well not old punks, but post punk period, you know, still yeah, yeah. still had an issue with the goth period. You know, the yeah, goths. definitely, yeah, there there are those issues, and yeah, but it's you know, goth is punk's child. Tell you know, tell that yeah. to Dave Bamian. You know. <laughs> he was always driving around in a hearse. <laughs> yes, listening to Screaming Jay Hawkins. So there you go. And Screaming Lord Suchley looks exactly like, if you see footage of Screaming Lord Suchley in the early 60s, terrifying living daylights out of the young ladies in the audience. He looks remarkably like the young Dave Banian, like the father and son. Yes, this is true. And check it out. I will, I will. Look, Kathy, thank you ever so much for this and thank you for, for such an amazing book. It was, um, you know, seeing things about Wham Records and, you know, Doctor and the Medics and and all those kind of little kind of extra bits was was a sort of real thrill ride, actually. Yeah, I'm really glad you enjoyed it that much because, yeah, it's what I was trying to put in. Well, there was all the bad stuff of the 80s. I wanted to put in everything good I'd learned as a result of being young in the 80s and all the great things that these bands and artists led me to, really. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I've also noticed that the 80s narrative just was was a little bit like, you know, the Dylan Jones. It was kind of Spandau Ballet. It was Wham. Then it was yeah. the Blitz Kids. Then it was Live Aid. And I remember thinking, that wasn't my 80s. And actually, no. what I've really, really enjoyed is all the other people going, oh, hang about. Yeah, that was <laughs> the rubbish 80s. <laughs> that, that was like, God, that was like, and I went to Live Aid and I was really moaning, thinking, this is the worst lineup I've ever seen. Where's Susan and the Banshees? Where's the Smiths? Where's as what I was quite irritating probably um but I <laughs> no but you had a point it was I, I thought I had a point I still do but yeah so it's brilliant that the people have, like yourself have written the 80s which is not about the Blitz Kids and Spandau Ballet which really sound terrible to this day actually <laughs> you can't say that but I can but they you do sound can say that <laughs> they do they do Tony Hadley just they never don't. Yeah. But compare them to Joy Division, no flipping contest there, is there? No. Did you sort of, oh God, sorry, Rima Rima suddenly appears, don't they, in our lives in the last few years as a film? Did you sort of think after, you know, did that, Did would you have thought of them as a slight goth band or were they tricky? Yeah, not, they not, were not really on my radar at the time. And now I, like really like it but I just it passed me by completely at the time though yeah sorry Rima Rima but sorry good old, good old Dorothy God never bless. mind there's yeah, only she... you have to say the end one to, yeah anyway look yeah. thank you ever so much and it's been amazing I really really love this book yeah. so much I've recommended thank it you. so um yeah and it's it's a great read and a brilliant brilliantly well told story and thank you know you have so great Yarmouth yeah yeah Beaver great Yarmouth I know it's the Las Vegas yeah. of the East East Coast. It is with every casino faithfully reproduced in concrete breeze block glory. Beautiful. And the Hippodrome. Have you done the Hippodrome? Well, I have done it. I've been in there many a time in my youth, and and it's the last such thing left in England, isn't it? It's Absolutely. Like the last Hippodrome standing. 
Peter J and the J Walkers. There we and go. And actually, Dorothy Max from Reba Reba, she does tea dances there now. So hurrah. Good. Keeping the faith. Look. Okay, yes. I think we better draw the veils growing thin now. Yes, it's a bit thin, isn't it? Anyway, look, have a lovely evening. And thanks again, Kathy. This has okay. been amazing. Okay, thank, thank you. David. Thanks so much. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Kathy Unsworth talking about her book, The Season of the Witch, The Book of Goth. That's come out on 9-8 Books. Do check it out. It is fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because, um, yes, we love our social history of the 80s, um, especially when it's about Thatch, the miners, the travellers, so much more. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's... Uh, yeah, C86 show, and um, just put that in. Keep it positive, keep it groovy. All these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.